I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, great to see so many people here, unsurprisingly, I think. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be in conversation with David. Uh, I think, I know personally, there are people in the audience for whom your work has been a huge influence for a very long time, certainly being influenced on myself, and a body of work which I think, in a sense, gives many people on the hope, uh, on the left, sorry, hope, kind of intellectual uh, challenge to the neoliberal consensus which is so dominant. So I think it'll be a really interesting discussion today, and I think there's lots of wider themes we can draw on. We're here, of course, because of his new book, which is a fantastic book, which is uh, 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism, which if you haven't got, I do hope you will at the end of this discussion. So I'm going to kick it off because I particularly want to hear your thoughts from the floor. Now, I guess what I wanted to start with was the age in which we live. And we live in an age of, I guess, capitalist triumphalism. And it was summed up by Francis Fukuyama, who I think is actually coming to the bookshop uh, for you to heckle at in a few months. No, you shouldn't heckle him. But he, he wrote The End of History, which, which summed up in a, in a way that, that mood, particularly uh, with the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. But it was Frederick Jameson as well who said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. I mean, with a book like this, when you're talking about the end of capitalism... What do you think, how that sits in this age in which we live and what hope do you feel that actually being able to talk about the end of capitalism is something on the agenda again? Yeah, I always uh, (coughs) never agreed with that statement. Actually, I first heard it from Donna Haraway, not from Fred Jameson, but I guess Fred Jameson's more famous, so I guess that's how you get quotes. Um, I've always thought it the other way around. I have a very hard time imagining the end of the world. Uh, I think the cockroaches will last very well. We may make a a mess of a, uh, an environment that uh, makes it difficult for humanity to survive, but I don't see the end of the world at, at all. Uh, but I certainly see the end of capitalism. And I think uh, for very specific reasons, and one of the reasons I try to lay out in the book uh, towards the end is the impossibility of sustaining compound growth. That when you have a system that is growing at a compound rate of, uh, say, 3% per annum forever, uh, what it does is it begins to go like this, and I think we've been at an inflection point in the history of capitalism where we're moving into that point of the curve, an exponential curve, where you start to 
ratchet upwards. Put in physical terms, you think of what uh, 3% compound growth meant when, you know, uh, capitalism was about uh, Manchester, Birmingham, and a few other places in Europe, and, and that's one thing. When you think of capitalism today, you're thinking about everything that's going on in China, you're thinking of everything that's going on in Southeast Asia, uh, you're thinking about Europe, North America, everything. You're thinking about a massive transformation of planet Earth, which when you think about what has happened over the last 30, 40 years in transformations of urban life and transformations of cities, then imagine that being increased tenfold over the next 20 years you're then looking at the compounding stuff and you kind of say, this is something that is unable to, to continue. And I think one of the signs of that has been that more and more capital is actually not entering into uh, what you might call value creation and, and value production. It's, it's more and more entering into purchases of assets. Therefore, we're getting asset bubbles all over the place. And we're beginning to see the emergence of a rentier kind of capitalism that's living off rents rather than living off productive activity. And we see that in housing markets, in land markets. We see land grabs in Africa and all the rest of it. So just in summary, I, I don't think uh, capitalism is going to end with either a bang or a whimper. I think it's going to end with a series of uh, volcanic social eruptions, which we're seeing all over the world in Brazil and Istanbul and, and you name it, uh, accompanied by popping asset bubbles all over the place. So that's how it's going to end. And it's going to be very uncomfortable to live with unless we actually bring ourselves together and say, OK, we're going to change this system and change it uh, dramatically into something that's a close to, in the end, a zero growth economy. Uh, and one which is not about profit-seeking, but it's about pursuit of use values rather than exchange values, the pursuit uh, of social well-being rather than the pursuit of money power. Before we move on to some of the themes in the book, I just wanted to kind of just think about you and your position, because it strikes me as part of the rise of neoliberalism in the last 30 years or so, Part of that has been kind of intellectual hegemony, the emptying out of the academy of dissident thinkers, not just Marxists, but even mild Keynesians have found themselves basically purged from economics departments and so on. I mean, you yourself, you're in a geography department. There are others like Haojun Chang, who as well isn't in an economics department. I mean, do you feel yourself intellectually isolated or do you feel part of a broader intellectual movement, which, if you like doesn't leave you marginalised in that way, in the way neoliberalism has attempted to marginalise well, I think I think it's changing a bit. I mean, uh, around the time that Fukuyama was writing The End of History, uh, I kept on being told that Marxism was dead, and I, all I could reply was, I said, I thought I was alive, and I was all, all right. And uh, as far as I could tell, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't quite in the coffin yet. And so there was a period in which uh, it was extremely difficult. And I think during that period, which is a sort of heyday of the Washington consensus and everything's kind of, uh, you know, uh, weirdly was called the great moderation and, and the like when, when it was actually very difficult. Um, but then towards the end of the 1990s, you had the popping of the kind of new economy, the, the, the dot-com economy and all of that and the crash of the stock market in 2000. And then it was sort of uh, followed by also the kind of the rise of the anti-globalization movement. And, and so the things started to look, I think, rather different. And then, of course, came the crash of 2007, 2008. And people kind of started to look around and kind of say, well, this system is not working very well uh, at all. 
And, and we got to a really interesting point in, in the nature of the system. And we had this debate about what's going on in New York, for example, uh, recently. And, and the formulation was something that I learned from a Brazilian president back in the 1960s and the, during the Brazilian miracle. And he kind of said, uh, the country's doing very well, but the people are doing very badly. And again and again, what we see is almost the same kind of sentiment that uh, the 1% is doing fine right now. In fact, they've come out of this crisis far, far better off than before. And so by 2009, they said the crisis is over. You can't say, well, what about all the unemployed and what about all of those sorts of things? So then these questions come up. And what is really striking to me right now, and I think this is uh, the thing that lies at the heart of what you're talking about, is the lack of new thinking. It seems right now that we have a crisis which is being prolonged and it's sort of drifting and shifting around the world from one place to another, from one sector to another. And nobody really has any good ideas as to exactly what to do about it other than, if you like, repeating some of the old nostrums. Let's go back to Keynes. Well, Keynes worked for a while, but then that crashed at the end of the 60s into the 1970s. There's serious problems with going back to that. And then in came the monetary stuff, and that's crashed. Now we now see. So what is a third way or what is a way beyond that, that simple choice between a demand-side attempt to revive the economy, which would be the Keynesian, or a supply-side attempt to do it, which is the sort of monetarist uh, dogma, austerity budgets and all the rest of it, or some peculiar mix of the two, uh, which you get in, in some parts of the world. And I think there's a very good reason for that, which I try to go into in the book, that actually the relationship between production and realisation gives you two options. Uh, one is to worry about realisation, which is to worry about demand, and the other is to worry about supply. The supply is dealt with in Volume 1 of Capital, demand in Volume 2. There's a huge contradiction between Volume 1 and Volume 2 in terms of how the economy looks from those standpoints. And there is no way within capitalism out of this particular dilemma, which I think accounts for the, the stasis right now. And, of course, economics departments uh, don't want to change Manchester. They were trying to talk about changing it in the university. And I guess the powers that be said, no, 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 we don't want any of that kind of kind of stuff. And, of course, it's, it's rather, rather tragic that universities, which should be the places where there should be discussion and debate about these things, are not, not open uh, at all to that debate. I think the first contradiction you talk about in the book, I think will particularly resonate with a London audience, this contradiction between use value and exchange value. Uh, the idea particularly applied to housing, which is something you've written extensively about. Obviously, a use value of a house is move over someone's head. Exchange value, the way you know it's built speculatively as a commodity to be sold on the market and so on. I mean, do you look at Britain generally, particularly London, though, where in the run-up to this election, for example, George Osborne stoking a, a, a housing boom through um, help-to-buy scheme and so on. You've got five million people across the country on social housing waiting lists, one in four kids in London who are living in overcrowded homes, whilst inner London is basically being bought up by millionaires from places like Russia and elsewhere to, to be used speculative. I mean, is that, do you think, a kind of striking example of, of that kind of contradiction? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it is. And the whole notion of the distinction between use and exchange value works very well in housing. And in fact, that's one of the ways I got into Marx. I mean, I was not born a Marxist. I sort of got to be a, a Marxist by, by starting to think about, well, what would be a sensible way to understand certain things? And I was involved in uh, a big investigation into the Baltimore housing market in the late 1960s, early 1970s. 
And uh, so we did all this stuff on what was going on in, in inner city housing. And, uh, and, and the trouble was, people sort of said to me, well, okay, you're a Brit, you know how to write, so you write the report. And so I got landed with writing the report, and I didn't know how to do it, and I just read Marx, and I thought, well, I'll write this report about housing uh, around the concepts of use value and exchange value. And I sort of wrote this report, and then we presented it to all the bankers and the financiers and the developers, and it was kind of, you know, big round the table, and I wondered how they'd take all of this. One said, God, this idea of use value and exchange value, it's so simple, and it's so good, and it's so obvious. This is a terrific way to analyse it. And then one of them said to me, yeah, we thought you were an economist and would give us all that demand and supply crap, which never works. So it went on like this. And I thought it was great. Or should I tell them this is from volume one of Capital, page one? <laughs> and of course, I didn't tell them. So I thought to myself, you know, I just started reading Marx. I thought, well, if this is on page one of Marx, I'd better read page two. <laughs> and, and that actually was one of the ways I got into reading Marx because a lot of it is common sense if you can stop people turning it into gobbledygook, which Marxists love to do. But here you have this use value, exchange value stuff, and you kind of go, all right, you've just had this bedroom tax put on. Well, they put it on the wrong class. You should put it on all those people who have empty houses. Every empty room, you should put a tax on it. And you'd solve the housing problem for everybody in the country right out. I mean, they'd be forced to put all that stuff on the market. You wouldn't be able to warehouse housing and speculate on housing. You should have anti-speculation taxes, things of that kind. I mean, we have this problem in New York. We have all these empty condominiums and we have a lot of homeless people. And you can't go, this is, this is total irrationality. And it's a situation in which the exchange value structures are actually inhibiting a rational allocation of housing use values to people who need it. Now, if you say housing is a human right, it's not a commodity, then you would kind of say you've got to find some way to stop that exchange value structure doing what it's doing, which is absolutely ludicrous when you think of the allocation going on. So why don't we campaign for a bedroom tax on mansions in the city of London and then see what happens? Of course, you know, I can just imagine the Conservatives passing that one. But on the other hand, from a popular standpoint, it wouldn't be hard, it seems to me, to take the use value, exchange value arguments wrong, say we've got to have a reform, major reform, which is going to have the effect of actually uh, depressing house prices, which, of course, upsets everybody because that's going to destroy economic growth. And then you say, why do we need the 3% compound growth to be about accelerating house prices in the way it is? And, and why is it all about rising land prices in the way it is? Why is it going on in this way? And, and at that point you say, well, that's what capital headed into a daft economy. It already is daft enough, but now it's getting even dafter. And so to me, this kind of use value, exchange value dynamic in housing markets actually laid at the root of the crisis of 2000 and 2008. And look at the situation, you say, a crisis arose out of that, and now what are we doing? We're going back and doing the same thing and actually repeating it. And if you look around the world and look at what's going on in China in housing and property markets, you'd say this is exactly what was going on in the United States in 2004, 2005. I've just come back from Turkey and, and Istanbul looks like Madrid looked like in 2005. And look what happened in Madrid. And you kind of look at this and say this is, this is a complete irrational way in which to start to think about the dynamics of an economy. And if you turn to an economist and kind of say, why aren't you talking about this in a, in a simple way, you can't get people to, to do it. One of the things that struck me, an interesting concept you talked about, was the idea of a moneyless economy and actually how that is now... Because a lot of people might look at the idea of a moneyless economy is, is kind of utopian, is impractical. But you talk about actually through technological change, that concept is actually more... 
relevant than it's ever been. Yeah, I mean, cyber currencies are on the way. And the only interesting question is what form they're going to take. You know, there's the experiment with Bitcoin and there are things like that. I think that's a pretty conservative, speculative instrument. It, it would be pretty easy to start to invent new currency systems and they could have all sorts of characteristics. And the one I like is the idea uh, in which money becomes oxidizable. Now, the reason that gold and silver became the money commodities was because they're non-oxidizable metals. If money is oxidizable, you have to use it in order to preserve it. And actually, in the 1930s, there were some stamped money systems which were designed, which were really kind of interesting. You had the money, and if you didn't use it in a month, then you had to go and get a stamp on it to renew the money. And it was like a negative rate of interest. So you had to pay sort of $5 to renew your $100 bill. And, and so there's an oxidation schedule that goes on. And there are a couple of economies, a couple of monetary systems. There's one in Buenos Aires called BioEcon. It's on the web uh, that you can actually see. It has an oxidizable component in it. In this instance, money becomes a means of exchange and operates as a means of exchange, but it cannot be a means of saving. It's just going to disappear. And now, if this happens, then this is a form of money that's anti-accumulation. And to the degree that money is the primary means by which uh, social wealth is appropriated by private persons, it actually undercuts class power. I mean, imagine a situation where George Soros would have to go into a bank and get a stamp on every $100 bill, you know. He'd get pretty tired after a bit of doing this and would lose a lot of money very fast and he'd whittle away things. So, so there are oxidizable currencies around and different monetary forms which are, are going to come in. And there's no question about that. The banks themselves are beginning to design them. They're very interested in, in monopolizing this. Google is very interested in running this. Amazon is very interested in running this. So watch out. They're soon going to be getting their own money forms. And by the way, if you think this oxidizable function is, is peculiar, there's one very simple uh, case uh, where we actually encounter this, and that's airline miles. Uh, if you get your airline miles and you don't use them in two years, they disappear. So there, is, there are models of things happening of this kind. And I think that actually by changing the nature of the, of the monetary form, this would, could have a powerful influence on the, the, the way wealth gets distributed, the way in which wealth gets appropriated. And I think this is a, a very uh, exciting area. And I think the left has not really got into it very much. Uh, a lot of what's going on right now is, is actually being organized by the right and by the big corporations who I think are going to try to organize and orchestrate this monetary form in much the way they've done with other forms of information. That is, they set up a system and they will extract rents from it. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, a, this is a rentier economy which we're moving into. And so the monetary form, I think, will be a form of banking which, which uses these electronic monies. Um, another thing I want to talk about is the, the nature of the state. Marxism looks at that and understands the state is, is kind of a machinery for one class to oppress another. And you talk about a centralised state protecting a decentralised property system. I mean, do you find it interesting that one of the things that's kind of peculiar about neoliberalism is its rhetoric is all very anti-statist, and yet it's completely dependent on the state, whether it be obviously protecting property, but whether it be bailed out banks, whether it be infrastructure, education to educate their workforce, whether it be uh, subsidies for low pay, tax credits, housing benefit for landlords. I mean, it's a... It's a racket, really, isn't it? It's a yeah. statist oh, yeah. racket. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 
Uh, again, it's part of the Rontier structure. The state is busy sort of setting up uh, capacity of rental appropriations. Now, this is a inter- interesting kind of point, though. On the, on the question of the state, how there's a large segment of the left which actually shares with the right a certain kind of uh, ideological approach to the state. I mean, when Ronald Reagan famously said, the state is not the solution, it is the problem, well, there's a lot of people on the left who say exactly the same. And in fact, they're Reaganites. And if you call them Reaganites, they get furious. But in fact, there's a lot of people who share that perspective. And I have these big arguments with some of the people on the left, particularly you know, coming out of the autonomista anarchists, that you, you, can't, you can't do without some kind of structure of, of, of power that is able to be decisive about certain things that are important, particularly the provision of public goods. Think about sewage and water or something of that kind. And you kind of say, look, uh, it's all very well saying I'm going to have an anarchist commune, but if you have no uh, way of disposing of your garbage and you have no, you know, you have no water supply, you're in deep shit, literally. <laughs> so I think the question of the state, uh, I mean, obviously, obviously the, the, a lot of what the state does is supporting capital. And this whole thing about being anti-state is really about getting rid of social expenditures. In a way, the state has abandoned any responsibility for the social wage and basically said the social wage is your problem or leave it to the NGOs uh, and we'll privatise, as it were, all, all kind of social expenditures. And on those, on those grounds, we can reduce taxation for the upper classes and that seems to be the, the main thrust. It's a class project. But, of course, you don't take away the state in terms of its protection of capital, as we see in the bailing out of the banks and the moral hazard that's arisen in the banking community. The state has a very important role to play in support of, uh, of corporate capital and the support of the capitalist system. But at the same time, I think the left hasn't got a, a very coherent way of, of asking questions about what kind of state we want and how we want it. And, and there's either a fallback position of we want to re, rebuild the welfare state, which I think is not where we should go, we should be going in some other direction in terms of how the left should understand and, and, and think about the state in relationship to you know, private property. And in the end, I think, try to submerge this state-private property dichotomy into the idea of uh, associated populations uh, regulating their own environment and according to developing their own laws organically. And some, some system of that kind uh, should, should be investigated. Um, in your chapter on inequality, I mean, you point out the top 1% of, of New Yorkers, their average income is over $3.5 million, whilst half the city live on less than $30,000. Here in London, Danny Dawling um, has estimated the top 10% are worth 273 times the bottom 10%. And obviously, if you get to the top yeah. 1%, that's going to be far, far more acute. I mean, you, you talk about how actually these, these levels of inequality are so huge, so grotesque they could actually pose a threat to capital. It might be in its interest to reduce them. But you talk about a revolutionary reform movement which would agitate around reducing social inequality. Yeah, I mean, there is beginning to emerge a bit of a literature now with Piketty and all those other people saying the levels of income inequality which are with us now are like those of the 1920s and what happened after the 1920s where we've got the 1930s and that there's an organic relationship between increasing social inequality of this sort and uh, economic collapse. I'm not sure I think it's that simple, but at least there is uh, some, some grounds for arguing that capital will be much better off with a better distribution of income, in particular in terms of the structuring of the markets. 
I mean, if you reduce people's purchasing power, then you reduce the market. You've got people living on $30,000 a year. They're not going to be able to buy a lot of discretionary consumer goods. And so uh, redistributions could uh, certainly benefit certain sectors of capital, if not the whole development of capital. So there is an argument along those lines, which I think uh, is important. And uh, we should be listening to that argument. But my point about it being a, a, a sort of revolutionary reform is once you start to push the income inequality uh, from there to there, then what happens when it goes to there and what happens when it actually disappears? Uh, capital could never s- sustain itself on the basis of, of anything close to egalitarian distribution of, of income and wealth. It just couldn't work that way at all. So, you know, how far you go down this thing before you really start to challenge the basics of what a capitalist economy looks like, we don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere down there you've got, got a point where you start to actually challenge uh, the reproduction of capital rather than facilitating reproduction of capital on, on a smoother social and also economic basis, which would happen with a modest redistribution from where we're at right now. Um, the environment has become an issue which has become far more central to the, I guess, broad left-wing project, particularly over the last 30 years. It's this sense that actually capitalism poses an existential threat effectively to to humanity, to the world, because its constant search for profit is destroying the environment. I guess linking to that traditional set choice, which was given as socialism or or barbarism. But, I mean, your chapter on the environment in, in this, you, you've got quite a lot of interesting caveats. That capital has got a long history of successfully resolving ecological difficulties, as you put it. That capital can co-opt environmental issues. There's a booming industry in renewable energies and so on and, and so forth that capital could actually find it possible to continue amongst environmental uh, catastrophe but you say i mean the point i guess from a left-wing point you tell it's classic kind of marxist uh, tradition alienation from nature is alienation from our own species potential so how do you put the environmental cause in terms of the broader case for well the emancipation of humanity yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit antagonistic to the apocalyptic language of uh, a lot of the environmental movement. I think uh, there's an argument to be had about this. I mean, I made the comment the other day that a lot of the environmental movement over the last century or more has cried wolf too many times. And if somebody said, yeah, but that doesn't mean the wolf isn't still at the door. And I think just because capital has wiggled out of its environmental constraints and dealt with its resource constraints and, and actually in some instances we find, you know, some parts of the world the air is cleaner and some parts of the world the rivers have been cleaned up. I mean, so, you know, the environmental balance is, uh, is a little more complicated than a lot of environmentalists uh, would say. On the other hand, I think there are serious threats to biodiversity I think there are issues about climate change and there are some other uh, questions that are, that are coming up on the environment that need to be dealt with, uh, which would require uh, severe adjustments in the way in which a capitalist economy functions in relation to its resource, the resource constraints, but also in terms of its, the environment's capacity to absorb pollutants and the environment's capacity uh, to absorb the new chemicals that which were 
uh, we're creating. So there are issues, there are serious issues that need to be addressed, and, and they're always long-term issues, and capital is always short-term, so there's a real problem over whether these issues will get addressed, and I would, I would share a lot of concerns with environmentalists o- over that. But I think one of the biggest issues for me uh, is... Uh, uh, this very instrumental approach that capital has to what nature is and how we understand our relationship to nature so that the attempts to bring back in, if you like, some sort of idea of, of a specific relation to nature which is uh, more fulfilling and more, uh, more aesthetically pleasing and at the same time has, has some depth of meaning to it and you'll find this now expressed in the constitutions of countries like uh, Bolivia and Ecuador uh, that there is a certain commitment. Now this is a linguistic commitment, it's not a real commitment and the distinction between a linguistic commitment in a constitution and what actually happens on the ground, those are two kind of different kinds of questions but nevertheless there is I think uh, a good reason to sort of say look the way in which we are relating to the world around us is not emotionally or intellectually satisfying we are depriving ourselves of of, and, and cutting off uh, as it were, a form of sustenance in terms of our understanding and, and sense of what is a good life and how that good life shall be lived by having this view of nature as, uh, you know, Heidegger once called it, that we view nature as just one big gasoline station and it loses, as it were, any kind of uh, notion of uh, aesthetic pleasure, romance and, and uh, magic, which I think is, is, is very much part of what we are about as well as what the natural world is about in terms of social change i mean obviously at the heart of broadly the left is this sense that social change happens not because of the goodwill and generosity of those above but through the struggle and sacrifice of those below and you talk about the stripping away of hard-won gains gains which are won at huge cost and huge sacrifice um over the last particularly 30 years and we can see that in this country obviously the onslaught on the welfare state the privatization of our National Health Service attack on what remaining rights workers have. I mean, what has driven this above all else, this total reversal which happened in the last three decades where gains are constantly being stripped away here and elsewhere? Well, you know, my interpretation of neoliberalisation has been very much about that this is a class project all along by the wealthy and powerful to gain more wealth and power and actually to recover from what was for them a real crisis of capital accumulation that occurred towards the end of the 1960s into the 1970s. Now, if that's the case, then what we find is everything begins to change. Uh, economic theory changes from Keynesian to supply side. The whole kind of philosophy of state intervention changes from Keynesian to the kind of thing that Margaret Thatcher and Reagan instituted. So we have all of those changes going on. The final point of the book is to say one thing that's very interesting is the way in which a dominant mode of production and its political articulation tends to give rise to its own distinctive forms of opposition. And there's an interesting sense in which in the times when, you know, the big auto companies and the big steel industries were kind of there and we were all thinking about the factory workers and so on, we were looking at forms of opposition which rested upon a strong trade union movement, on social democratic parties, on uh, the idea of constructing welfare state and all those kinds of things. 
And what's happened through neoliberalization is we've actually constructed a situation in which most of those institutions have been under assault. Most of them have been defanged, if not uh, destroyed. And instead, we've got oppositional forms which are reflective in some ways of the neoliberal way of doing business, which means that, for example, we rely on the NGOs. Now, revolution by NGO, forget it. There's some very good people in NGOs who want to make revolutions, and I make a distinction between the people in NGOs. But there's, you know, there's about six million people employed by the NGOs in the United States alone, and distributing something like three hundred twenty billion dollars. And this is a, this is a big industry. Philip Buffett, which is Warren Buffett's son, wrote this piece in which he talked about being in that world and saying, "This is philanthropic colonialism, and it's actually conscience laundering on the part of the very rich." And what they do is they, you know, give lots of money to all of these kinds of things. They don't know what they're doing and why they're doing it. But the one thing about all those NGOs is they're always remedying ills, remedying people who've been victimized in some way or other. The NGOs never challenge wealth. And you kind of say to yourself, well, we should have an NGO structure that is concentrating on attacking wealth and accumulation. And you can't solve the problem of impoverishment without solving the problem of accumulation of wealth. But there's this fantasy that somehow you can. So the NGOs can't touch the accumulation of wealth because the accumulation of wealth is what funds the NGOs. So here you've got a kind of structure, as it were, which is not going to be able to provide any kind of answers to, to the political requirements uh, of the time. And I think along with that has gone this idea of personal responsibility which has become widespread. You know, I mentioned sort of Ronald Reagan's view of the state, Margaret Thatcher's view that there's no such thing as society, and there's only individuals and their families. Well, this individualizes things. And so there's a tendency for people to say, well, I'm individually responsible, and if there's a mess, it's my fault, it's not the system's fault. And there were some very interesting polling done of uh, people who'd lost their houses in the United States, and the majority of people who lost their houses through foreclosure kind of said they lost it because of their own fault. They didn't say there's a systemic problem here. They didn't blame capitalism. They didn't blame the banks. They didn't blame any of this. They just blamed themselves. And when people blame themselves, they're actually accepting that they are, if you like, winning victims. And so there's a victimology that actually then surfaces. And you end up with a kind of politics which is whinging about being victimized and looking for remedies and hoping that somebody somewhere will provide some remedies to them having been victimized. This is something that uh, I think doesn't lead to very good solidarious politics, and it's very difficult to construct solidarities and political organization in a situation of this kind, which is why I spend a lot of time in the book talking about alienation and the forms that alienation can take and under what ways alienation actually can have a passive form, which is mourning the loss of something. And, and feeling powerless to do anything about it and being turned off, being sort of alienated from the political system, alienated from the work process. There was a poll just recently came out by the Pew about the work satisfaction in the United States, and 70% of the population either hated going to work or were completely indifferent to the nature of the work they did. So there's no kind of personal identity taken from work. Then the idea is that they could... You take personal identity from consumerism, so you get compensatory consumerism, but then that breaks down. And so there's a kind of a sense of, of loss, but there's nothing put in its place. And turning alienation from passive into something that's active, active trying to sort of say, okay, we want our world back, 
We are the ones who have been making this world. We want to have a determining role in it, turn it into an active thing. It becomes extremely difficult. What we see right now, of course, are these outbursts of, of very often ephemeral protest. Uh, like in, you know, Gezi Park and, and, and Taksim Square, uh, like in Brazilian cities, uh, recently. So you see these outbursts, which are sometimes just angry outbursts of, of alienated populations. But then the big question is, how can that be actually turned into, uh, something? There has to be a new way of doing politics. And I don't think we've discovered what that new way of politics is. It can't be the old way. And I think we have old parties and old institutions which are not going to work, and we haven't actually found the new ones that really are going to work, even though there's lots of experimentation going on out there, which is, I think, a very, very healthy and very good sign, but it has not come together in terms of a political movement that can really challenge what the capitalist hegemony is all about. I mean, just finally on that, uh, before I open it up, I mean, you, you place yourself very strongly in the humanist tradition. Yeah. You talk about humanism as how through conscious thought and action we, we can change the world we live in and also for ourselves. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com and you talk about allying secular revolutionary humanism to religious space humanism. So you've got these ideas at the end of ideas for political praxis, um, which answer these contradictions, 17 of them here, um, whether it be the direct provision of adequate use values, taking precedent over the provision through uh, profit, maximising market systems, uh, daily life being slowed down of... Of, uh, of everyone having equal entitlements to education, healthcare, housing, food security, so on and so forth. I mean, I guess my question is, what is the political means of achieving these things that you talk about? And where does Marxism fit in? Because, I mean, Marx in his day, he was despaired even then of fellow Marxists. He said, he said famously, I'm not a Marxist. He said uh, he'd sown dragons and reaped a harvest of, of fleas and that was before the you know the era of stalinist uh, totalitarianism right. and the, the very sects we have today so where does marxism fall into this in terms of actually creating a coherent political alternative that can mobilize people and actually change the world around us well i, I don't know where marxism falls into this I, I don't know whether i'm a marxist or there are quite a few marxists around who feel i'm a kind of revisionist say all kinds of nasty things. I mean, Marxists like to say nasty things about each other. So I, I really so, sort of not terribly interested in that. What I have been interested in is, is getting people to read Marx because I think that it's a fantastic source of insight and analysis of, of how capital works. And, and therefore, if you understand how it works, then you also understand something about what it will take to change it. So 
I'm not sure my interpretation of Marx is, I wouldn't say it's the correct interpretation. It's an interpretation. I would like everybody to read it and make up their own minds what they want to do with it and use it creatively. Uh, I think we have to just use our creative talents as well as we can to try to think through some of the, the difficulties we're, we're currently uh, facing and, and whether the ideas come from somebody who says, uh, I am a Marxist or comes from somebody who says, I am not a Marxist. I don't, in the end, care too much. I'm generally depicted as being in that tradition. When I first started reading Marx, as I said, I just thought it was interesting. But by the time I'd cited it favorably about three times in about three articles, I was then depicted as a Marxist. And I said, no, I'm not a Marxist. I just think he says some interesting things. But by then, you're, you're finished. You know, you're a Marxist. And so I was stuck with it. So I said, all right, well, I'm not going to debate the issue anymore. But it, it, it seems to me... The question of where does the Marxist tradition fit, I find a lot of Marxists are very conservative, uh, extremely conservative. Uh, they can't get rid of their attachment to some kind of part of Marxist theory. Uh, the sort of thing that drives me nuts is kind of uh, looking at the crisis and then saying, ah, but it's the falling rate of profit, isn't it? And then going and smiling and feeling great, very superior. Everybody knows uh, Marxists have successfully... Uh, predicted 25 of the last three crises and and so so we shouldn't take much credit for saying we we told you so the point of that i was making at the end there was was not to lay out a political program but to try to frame the debate around well if we want to replace this engine of capital accumulation which powers what the capitalist society is about. If we want to replace that engine, uh, we have to do so by looking at the contradictions for two reasons. One is it gives you an opportunity to intervene and change it, that none of the contradictions are ever stable. They're constantly in, in motion. Brecht kind of said hope is latent in contradictions, and I think that's right, that we can actually use them to try to construct something alternative, I mean, like use value and exchange value. I mean, recently what we've seen in higher education, just to take the obvious example, is the insertion of exchange value into, into higher educational strategies. Now, we've had that for a long time in the United States, and of course, what do we see? We see a massively indebted student population, uh, which has uh, the virtue, as far as the system's concerned, that indebted people are actually imprisoned people and have much less room for maneuver, as it was said about... Uh, housing uh, in, in the 1930s and the mortgage finance, that debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. Debt-encumbered students are very vulnerable to the manipulation and social control. Now, that's just come in in this country. You can reverse it and say we should be reversing. We should be getting exchange value out of education, not putting it in. We should be getting exchange value out of housing, not putting it in. We should be getting exchange value out of healthcare, not putting it in. These are all of the kinds of things that have been put in over the last 30 years. And if they could be put in over the last 30 years, we could be taken out over the next 30 years. So it, it frames this, the discussion and the debate around what might be possible and how we might lean on one side of a contradiction versus another. We can think of alternative governmentality structures, if you like, as well. So the idea of those final things is not to sort of say, hey, here's the political program. It's to say these are the opportunities, these are the intervention points where we could actually enter in and actually pull a few levers and push it this way rather than that way. 
and then also recognize for ourselves that we should be very careful sometimes about imagining we are on a leftist project. But when we look at the structure of contradictions, what you will see is that what looks like a leftist program turns out to be a reactionary program. There are always these unintended consequences. So one of the ways in which to avoid unintended consequences is to have a better knowledge of how the system works. Great. Well, that's fantastic. What I'm going to do now is open up uh, for discussion. Professor Harvey, I had a question about um, the role of the kind of insecurity that uh, has has been a sort of hallmark of the last uh, decade or more in the way people have approached ideas from the left. Um, uh, You mentioned like oxidizable currency and all these things that are very difficult to do when you are very insecure because that tends towards hoarding and conservative gestures about like if, if it's cold, the right would say like grab a blanket and the left would say, try to construct a more efficient heating system in your house and all that. So I think there's this visceral response that has been uh, very appropriate for the times of insecurity. And, and that has tended maybe to uh, make people more amenable to right-wing narrative that is, is almost a common sense approach. And I wanted to ask, how can you uh, tell people in a time when globalization has made precariousness such a hallmark, how can you tell them to resist the idea of, say, if you're a poor student and you went to a very elite university, oftentimes you will be the person getting a job on Wall Street or something because that's your ticket. What's, what's the suggestion for breaking that cycle of vulnerable people acting in, in these ways that make other vulnerable people even more vulnerable? Um, just want to pick up your last point about you know, things like housing and education and the control and reversing some policies but it's one of the biggest problems is that we just seem to be in a generation where young voters who are mostly affected also seem to be extremely apathetic in getting involved people could instigate change, it's not capitalist versus socialist but it's just getting the politicians to actually enact what you want but we just live in an age of apathy Thank you, Carol Wilcox Interested in this idea of oxidation of money because, um, of course, the purpose being to stop the accumulation of money. But, of course, most wealth isn't just money. As you referenced right at the beginning, I mean, a huge amount of it is actually vested in housing in big cities. But you see, houses actually oxidise, don't they? Houses wear out. So... Actually, what we should be looking at is, is, you said about taxing houses, but you need to tax the land because the land doesn't wear out. The land actually is our common wealth. So first, this point about the insecurity on the left of approached ideas, there's this common sense approach of the right, which is, I suppose, Reagan and Thatcher really pioneered. And how you, in terms of actually getting people to resist, to break this cycle people are in where they feel unable to resist. If I had a full answer to that question, I wouldn't be here. The revolution would be uh, on its way. Clearly, the uh, employment structures and future prospects of uh, a whole generation are being jeopardized in all sorts of ways for political reasons. Uh, Also, the revolutions in technological capacities with the emergence of not only automation and robotization, but also... Uh, artificial intelligence uh, and the like. Many of those revolutions which are coming in are changing 
divisions of labor and job structures and, and reward structures. So th there is a tremendous change on the way and in the offing. And some of that is very difficult to get your head around. Computer capacity is now doubling every two years. And what that means is that you can do all kinds of things now that you couldn't do 10 years ago. And in another 10 years, we will be able to do a, a, a lot more. And this will eliminate a lot of jobs. Uh, for example, it is perfectly technically possible now to fly a jumbo jet from uh, JFK to Heathrow on an automated pilot. We don't need airline pilots anymore. So that category in the division of labor is likely to disappear in 10 or 15 years. There are many other jobs of that sort that are disappearing, particularly in healthcare. A lot of diagnoses are likely to be done uh, by artificial intelligence, uh, not by doctors, uh, and uh, we'll soon be in a completely different world. And one of the issues... Uh, right now, and I think we are quite right to point out, is it then makes it very difficult to start to get people to sort of think about what kind of p political projects should be pursued in the midst of these uh, very, very dramatic changes. And uh, I think mo uh, to the degree that many people get confused by this, uh, they tend to let go. And I think part of the apathy which uh, you're talking about is, is associated uh, with that confusion. Now, my own view is this, that one of the things we should be doing on the left is very much uh, diving into what the prospects are of, of the dynamics uh, available from uh, technological change and technological changes that are likely to come on board. Uh, I am uh, fearful of the, a left that tries to defend jobs in the face of technological change, which is going to render them obsolete uh, within 10, 15 years. I think it's very important to defend the people in the jobs. That's one thing. But to defend the jobs, I think, is, an, is, is something which is n not uh, reasonable. Now, this is something which the left experienced in the 1970s and 1980s, trying to defend against deindustrialization, that those jobs went. And it wasn't simply because of offshoring. Uh, when I got to Baltimore in uh, 1969, there was close to 35,000 people, something like that, employed in the local steelworks. Uh, by the time you get to 1990, the steelworks are producing the same amount of steel as only 5,000 people. The result was the trade union was no longer significant in Baltimore politics, all the kinds of things that changed from that. Now, it was important to try and defend the people who lost their jobs in steel, but you know, defend the jobs themselves was, was not the right way to go, and the left got defeated, and we will have the same thing again if we try to defend the job of airline pilot or a radiologist in a, in a hospital or, or something of this kind. In other words, we, we have to look at this and, and then say, what is the purpose of all of these technological changes? One of the purposes of these technological changes, from my standpoint, would be to create as much free time as possible in a population. Now, the thing that capital hates is people with free time, because when people have free time, they think. Or they start desiring things that, I don't know, are not quite within the right range of what capital wants. But, but what's interesting to me is we have all of these time-saving innovations which have come online. But most people you talk to find they have no time to do anything. And so the whole kind of question of the release of time into free time, which is totally free to do anything you like,
however you want, that that seems to me to be perfectly feasible right now. And, and under these circumstances, uh, we should be really thinking about a reordering of society. But again, it comes back about what the powers of capital are, what kinds of things that are going on from the standpoint of capital accumulation and what the dynamics of capital accumulation are about. And to me, again, a better knowledge of where all of this technological change is coming from and where it might be leading to having a strategy around the contradiction between a technological kind of dynamism that's heading in this direction versus labor, which is being pushed into an entirely different uh, direction. That kind of contradiction gives us, po- us opportunities and possibilities that we have to take care of. But this, I think, it also comes back to the apathy question, if I can add that in. Uh, the new Pope has complained about the globalization of indifference, and I think that that is a, a very kind of neat uh, way of putting it. But indifferent to what? It's, it's interesting to see... Uh, how people react to natural disasters and what kinds of response there is comes to that, to how people react to, say, the collapse of factories in Bangladesh, which are somehow or other put in another category and swept aside and uh, something that we don't have immediate responsibility for gets a positive reaction. Something we do have immediate responsibility for is somehow rather shoved under the carpet uh, fairly, uh, fairly fast. And I think that this is, again, has something to do with the nature of the class power, which is involved both in terms of media, communication, uh, understanding and, and the like. And the fact that youth is apathetic to some degree uh, because what they're faced with is uh, a situation in which they're becoming indebted, I'll talk about the United States becoming heavily indebted, in order to pay off that debt, they need to get a reasonable, satisfying job, and therefore they shouldn't be a troublemaker. Therefore, they don't take courses on Marxist capital. Therefore, they don't think about all kinds of things they should be thinking about. And so we get a sort of situation in which basically universities becoming breeding ground for corporal managerialism or, ne- or neoliberal dogma. And everybody kind of says, well, if that's what I have to know, that's what I have to know in order to get my job and therefore be able to live, uh, uh, have a little bit of life uh, left over from paying of my student debt. So this is the dilemma that exists right now. And I think the responsibility of people like myself and you, for that matter, is, is actually to involve ourselves in an educational project in which we try to help people understand exactly what it is that is, that is going on in terms of the dynamics of capital that is pointing in these directions and what the nature of the problem is or problems, the problems are that we need to address uh, politically. That last point, Carol is a long-time campaign on the land value tax, I should probably point out at that at yeah. this juncture. So the point she's, she's making, as well as taxing, you know, taxes, you were talking about right, housing, right, to get right, those houses right. into, into use again, what about taxing the land, yeah, for example, no, the land value Yeah, I think that, well, the significance of the rentier, uh, actually the rentier has been very much more uh, significant uh, in capitalist economy than is generally uh, understood. And I, there's some evidence... Uh, that uh, actually the upper classes in this country made more out of land in the 18th and 19th century than they made out of uh, the, the sort of cotton industry of, of Manchester. The, the land question is, is a big one. And I, I'd certainly be very much in favor of taxation on, on wealth in land. But you have to be a little careful about the land question because even if you tax the land values, you've still got the question of ownership. Uh, and still got the whole kind of question of who controls 
the use of the land. And as we know, there's a huge land grab going on throughout the world right now, which is, uh, I think, a sign of the fact that, uh, again, asset values are, are critical to the future of capitalism rather than engaging in production. So it's interesting to look at uh, what, say, the Harvard Endowment is doing, and a lot of what Harvard Endowment is doing is investing in, in land acquisition in Latin America and Africa, uh, along with the Chinese and a lot of a lot of other groups uh, as well. So the the uh, land resource question is is something which needs to be addressed, which fits in, of course, to the environmental constraints, resource uh, exploitation, extraction economies, which are uh, hegemonic in certain parts of the world. Uh, hi, I'm Reese, and I'm a student with an eye-watering high amount of debt who refuses to remain apathetic. So, uh, but I have a question that kind of comes from my understanding of rebel cities and uh, the condition of postmodernity. With the idea of time-space compression sort of being a mode of late capitalism, I kind of wonder if the interest in the resurgence to the right to the city comes from this notion that now we have the locus point of not just staggering inequality, but also sort of the places where financial capital has has sort of coalesced. So you see these conflicts sort of coming up like in San Francisco right now with the revolt of real San Franciscans against the tech people like with Google and the Google bus and everything. So I just kind of wonder is with this notion of time-space compression being associated with postmodernity, does that mean that urban politics are really the avenue for which we can break this hold of capitalist hegemony? And if urban politics could, from there, be hinting toward this new politics that's required? I was really struck by your um, discussion of how you're not a Marxist, uh, and I thought that uh, sounds like a lot of people in the room, including myself, really, really enjoyed the flexibility that you have in your kind of approach to um, to Marx. I was wondering oh, I'm a, whether I'm a flexible Marxist. I, I was wondering whether you feel the same way about the category of the left as a whole, because there's something that brings everybody together. I think um, as like people of the left that still has some sort of meaning. Uh, so whether it's people who are interested in forming political parties or involved in anti-capitalist movements in third world countries, there's still a kind of general sense of something called the left, but it's quite hard to know exactly what that is. So I'm wondering if you see yourself as the left and see the left as like a useful category for analysis and for action and how you would define it. Hi, yeah, I wanted to ask about um, kind of movements against neoliberalism, um, particularly in America at the moment, kind of movements towards higher minimum wages and statements that have come out of the New York mayor talking about the problems of inequality and um, what you think these kind of smaller movements, the role they have in a kind of broader discussion or movement for change. Great. So, so that first question from, from Reese about time, space compression, about urban politics, about those struggles he referred to in San Francisco and how that fitted in. As, as some of you know, I'm, I'm very much concerned with the issues of uh, urbanisation and the role of urbanisation in relationship to capital accumulation. And what follows from that is the role of urban struggles, 
and their connectivity to anti-capitalist uh, struggles. In some respects, it's asked the question also about the, the, the middle question. Well, I've always argued that uh, it would be false to suggest that class struggle only occurs at the point of production, uh, that the point of reproduction, and particularly in the community and in daily life in the city, is as important as uh, struggles in the workplace, and that the strongest forms of political organization are forms which actually combine the two, uh, that struggles in the workplace are combined with uh, either support from community or, or the other way around, that struggles... Uh, uh, in the community are supported. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a movement in Australia at one point called the Green Band Movement where construction workers would refuse to actually work on projects which were considered uh, environmentally uh, suspicious or, or degrading. So the, the mutual support between those two forms of struggle are important. And they're important theoretically because when you look at the way in which capital circulates, Capital, of course, circulates through production, but then it then it goes out and, and, and is realized through activities elsewhere. And you can imagine a situation where uh, capital will actually concede higher wages in the workplace uh, only to have, claw back all of those higher wages through higher housing rents, uh, supercharges on your credit cards and on your phone bills and all that kind of stuff. So actually people are no better off because they, it's simply the higher wages are sucked back uh, through this process, which occurs outside of uh, the labor contract and outside of uh, the, the workspace. So I've always wanted to see those uh, two sets of uh, struggles brought together around the general kind of approach to an anti-capitalist struggle and therefore the question of an anti-capitalist struggle is also about the construction of an alternative urbanization and what that alternative urbanization would look like which is not about housing speculation is not about land speculation not about uh, maximization of exchange value through all of the strategies we're seeing going on in housing markets right now uh, but we are actually concerned with the city life, which is built around the provision of adequate use values on the idea that certain basic use values are human rights as opposed to simply commodities, which should be available on a market, uh, marketized basis. So this is the kind of the way in which I would want to go. And I think that, uh, to me, this is a, a foundation to start to think about the organization of anti-capitalist struggles. And I have a fantasy sometimes in exactly the same way that some of the founding moments, uh, well, one of the founding moments of the origins of capitalism was the formation of the Hanseatic League, that we would end up with the equivalent of a Hanseatic League, which would be a league of socialist cities, uh, which would actually link together and uh, communicate with each other and act not competitively but supportively. I mean, this is just a fantasy, but, but it is interesting. Uh, that there have been some, some social movements. And if you look back at what happened in, say, 68, what you see is several cities actually erupting. We've seen some of that. There was a wonderful moment, which I always pay attention to, which was uh, February the 15th, 2003, the anti-war demonstrations, uh, which occurred in, in, I don't know, maybe 150 cities around the world. And, and in many cities, you had, I don't know, 3 million people in Rome and two in Madrid and two here and maybe two in London. There was a huge uh, sort of uh, almost simultaneous 
urban network. Now, that movement came together and massively for one day and then kind of disappeared and dissipated. This is part of the problem. But nevertheless, it was there. And it shows something about the possibility of mobilizing through an urban network, uh, which is, which has uh, real capacities and powers. And I think that that was a rather remarkable event, a fantastic event and, and something that you can look at and say, well, this, this is, can be really what a, a serious part of politics is about. The other example I used in the rebel cities was uh, the immigrant rights uh, movement in the United States in 2006, where there was this whole kind of thing about they were going to pass legislation to criminalize uh, illegal uh, residency in the United States. So there was a tremendous kind of revolt against that. And all, all the immigrant population, including the illegal ones, refused to go to work uh, one day. And, and, and Los Angeles stopped working. San Francisco closed down. Chicago closed down. New York didn't quite close down. Uh, and they did it again on May 1st. And they did it several times. And so there's a tremendous weapon. Uh, that can be wielded uh, by closing cities down at a certain point in this kind of way of when the issue is there. And I think that that kind of uh, movement is, is a significant. And I think we've seen one this last year in Brazil. It wasn't only Rio and Sao Paulo. It was places like Florianopolis, Salvador. About 50 cities in Brazil were, were in eruption. And uh, this is kind of mass urban-based protest. So I think there's a role, uh, a very a very key role to that. Those, those two last points. Firstly, I mean, you clarified your position with, with Marxism, but what about the left as a whole, Sam asks? What, what is the left? And the, the final point was these movements against uh, neoliberalism. And we've seen in the United States the yeah. election of a new populist mayor. Where does all that fit in? Well, uh, there's clearly a shift of sentiment, and I think uh, that shift of a sen- sentiment is to be attributed to Occupy, that before Occupy, nobody was talking about social inequality. Uh, since Occupy, everybody knows what you mean when you talk about the 1%. And, and it actually changed the discourse uh, about what was going on politically. And I think one of the consequences was that Obama got elected, partly because he began to talk about social inequality. Uh, and, of course, de Blasio got elected very handily because he's talking about social inequality in, in New York City and said that we have two cities and we have to do something about it. And he set up this very appealing program of uh, free uh, pre-kindergarten uh, programs in the schools which would be paid for by a tax uh, on the, the top 1%. And and so, yeah, I mean, those programs and the minimum wage things coming through and uh, there's been movements on living wages and so on. And, and so, so some of that's there. But what's, I think, interesting is to look at how fast capital surrounds those movements and, and clamps down on them. I mean, de Blasio wanted to have an, uh, a, a, a pre-kindergarten program well, which everybody knows is a really good idea, a fantastic idea, one of the best investments you can possibly make. And he wanted it to be funded by a tax, a dedicated tax uh, upon the very wealthy. Uh, in order to do that, he had to go to Albany, where there's a Democratic governor, and the Democratic governor said, no, you can't have the dedicated tax because the, dedicated, because the governor has political ambitions and wants to run for president, and he needs the support of the party of Wall Street, and he's of the party of Wall Street, so any dedicated tax upon the top 1% is 
a non-starter as far as he's concerned. So what did he do? He said, all right, you can have this program because it's a very good program. We will find the money in the state budget somehow or other. Where are we going to find the money from in the state budget? Well, we're going to take money away from this and take money away from that. So, you know, the usual kind of game that gets played. Now, de Blasio got defeated on that. So he's got no dedicated money and it was and immediately got into trouble over chartered schools in which the affluent uh, people went after him. So he's already kind of uh, actually put in his box and told basically, now be a good boy. We'll give you a few nice little things, but don't push it too far. And so he's been, been really corralled very, very fast. And I think it's very instructive. Uh, and in his case... When he was elected, he, he made, you know, in his election campaign, he made certain promises in his acceptance speech. And when he, when he was actually inaugurated, he repeated those promises and said, look, I really am going to try and do these things. At that point, he's seen as a threat and therefore he has to be kept in a corner. Where's the left? Well, yeah, there are a lot of people there who I think are actually sympathetic to what the left is talking about. And I'm very surprised. I've found people on Wall Street who are actually quite sympathetic to what we're talking about. The difficulty is to sort of break through uh, into some sort of consensus in which somebody actually, instead of saying, well, you know, you're right, but we can't do anything about it, kind of says, you're right, and we're going to do something about it. That's the real big difficulty as to getting people... And, and, and where's the left and who's the left? I don't define the left. I think the left is going to define itself. And it will define itself... Uh, around issues as those issues come up. De Blasio defined himself in a certain way as being a person of the left by the kind of programs he was instituting. We'll see what he does on affordable housing. Right now, he hasn't got very far, but again, for a certain kind of technical reasons. But he's a person of the left in a very generic sense, and I think can be pulled even further uh, to the left by if, the, if there's a very strong social movement in the city. Uh, so the remnants of Occupy are still very active in cities in, in New York, but mainly in the boroughs. They're no longer centrally visible, uh, but we'll then see, I think, whether they can do anything. I feel almost bad about asking this, but um, it's been fantastic tonight. Lots of solutions, lots of ideas and all that stuff. I work for an immigration charity, and when I go back to work... Um, it'll be next week because I can only afford to employ me part-time. Basically, I'm looking at the rise of UKIP, the rise of across Europe, Jobbik in, uh, in, in Hungary, the Front National in France and what have you. And then you look at the, what's happening in the immigration bill in the, in the UK, the capitulation of the Labour Party over, over immigration. And I just, I mean, I'm feeling quite depressed about the whole thing. Is this a blip or is this uh, what Rosa Luxemburg uh, uh, foresaw as the, um, the choice between um, barbarism or socialism? I mean, we really are. This is, this is the thing that probably worries me uh, most of all. When, when you have deeply alienated populations, they can be taken in all sorts of directions and move in all kinds of directions. And I think it's the case that uh, the Tea Party in the United States and all of the things that you are talking about here and across Europe uh, actually uh, sort of right-wing, xenophobic, anti-immigrant uh, stuff is, uh, you know, the immigrant is to blame and to be scapegoated. Uh, this, is, this is a dangerous, dangerous situation. Why, and that's one of the reasons why I think... Uh, I'm very upset at the left, put it this way, the, the social democratic left that it hasn't put its foot down on this at all. So that the Labour Party here, the Democratic Party in the United States are fearful and therefore don't do anything. And this, this seems to me to be a, a complete abrogation of, of political responsibility. 
at the same time, uh, the fact that there's no clear left alternative means that disaffected and alienated populations, insofar as they turn anywhere, tend to sort of drift off to, you know, Le Pen and Golden Dawn and all those kinds of places. So it's a real, real danger. So I don't know quite um, how to counter all of this, but it seems to me there's some urgency for the left to, to wake up and get itself uh, into motion on on a real clear project, which is which is uh, going to be able to counter that which is emerging on the right. So I, I I think what you're worried about, and you're right to be, well, you're you're sort of right to be worried about it, but don't be depressed. Uh, there was a wonderful response somebody had once to Clinton being elected, and uh, they asked, well, how do you feel about Clinton getting elected? He said, I'm angry. And everybody said, you're angry? He said, yeah, I'm really angry. And they kind of said, well, why? And he said, well, I think it's a good thing, but I'm really angry. He said, well, why do you, why do you feel better about it? He said, I'd rather be angry than depressed. And I think that actually feel angry, not depressed, I think is, is the answer. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much. That was a fantastic discussion and great question. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.